Good morning again, everyone. My name is DJ Martin, church pastor here at Parker Ford Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. It's so good to have you with us. We're blessed uh, through your presence, whether you're visiting family or perhaps live in the neighborhood and, and came in because it's Easter Sunday. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for setting aside time this weekend to come and uh, celebrate with us the Lord and Savior. This morning as I was praying and asking God what he would have for us, I had um, a picture in my mind as I was praying of a diamond. Anyone ever lifted up and held a beautiful diamond before and, and looked at it in the light? Ever had that experience where you, you hold a, a diamond up and, and you look at it and as you turn a diamond the light shines through it in different ways, right? And it, and it refracts, and sometimes, sometimes even light can go through it and create colors and, and all sorts of things as, as you turn it. And I love that picture when we think about the scriptures, especially when we engage the story of Jesus, because his word is, is like a precious pearl, a precious diamond. It's, it's beyond value that God has given us this gift. And we have four different tellings of Jesus's ministry in the four Gospels. And as we look at the different angles, because each writer wrote from a different perspective, and each writer had a different purpose for writing his Gospel, it's sort of like turning a diamond. And you can see different things that that Luke emphasized that was different than John. And different things that John emphasized that was different than Mark and from Matthew and so on. And so it's, it's when you turn the thing and see it from the different angles and perspectives that you get this beautiful, beautiful picture of, of Christ that's much fuller because we have all four of the Gospels. So as that picture was in my mind and I was praying for this morning, I felt like the Lord would have us look at the resurrection story from all four of the different Gospels. This morning, so we're going to look at at Jesus being raised from the dead from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this morning. Sound good? All right. So a couple things, just as we engage the gospel this morning, and this is um, healthy interpretive concepts for how how we read scripture. A fancy word for that would be hermeneutical approaches. How do, how do we read the scriptures? These are a couple things to keep in mind whenever you're reading the Gospels. Because it can be confusing when you come to an ancient text and read something that was written 2,000 years ago in a different language. So, first, Gospel, that word, comes from the Greek word euangelion. Can everybody say that with me? Euangelion. And that word just simply means good news. So what the Gospels are, when we say the Gospel of John, it's John's good news. And when the Gospel of Mark, so on and so forth. Now, what's interesting about this word, before Christians sort of stole it and reinvented it, it had a very different purpose. The word Gospel was primarily used by Roman emperors when they conquered a foreign enemy or an enemy that came against them, they would send a gospel proclamation out to the empire saying that they had military victory. Isn't that interesting? That is the way that the word gospel was originally used. And then Christians said, well, we don't worship Caesar as our Lord, right? Who do we worship as our Lord? Jesus. And Jesus has had victory 
victory, not in an earthly, physical sense over a physical enemy. Jesus has had victory over sin, death, and the grave. Jesus has had victory over the powers of evil itself. And so Mark is probably the oldest of the Gospels. And Mark is probably the first Christian writer to ever use the word gospel. And you can see it right at the beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you had never heard the word gospel used before outside of the context of a political military victory, and you see this, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a scandalous thing to read. That struck the first readers. They were taken aback by that, that someone would say that about Jesus, someone who died on a cross, rather than about a military victory. So there's something subversive about this on purpose, that Mark and the gospel writers use the word gospel. So when we read the gospels, keep this in mind, this is the good news proclamation of Jesus's victory. Pretty cool, huh? All right, second point. When we read the Gospels, they can be read as theological biographies of Jesus. They're not biographies in the modern Western sense of how we think of biographies. Because when someone writes a biography now, what what, what are the details we're interested in? We want to know when and where they were born. We want to know what school they went to. We want to know the main influences in their life. We want to know you know, psychologically, what happened to them when they were young that shaped them to be the person that they came to be. Now, biographies in the ancient world didn't have the same set of rules and things applied to them that they do today. So it's important that we don't superimpose our standards of what a biography is on to the ancient text. That's not fair because they weren't writing in 21st century America, right? They were writing in the first century and Palestine or in the ancient Roman Empire. And so they should be read as theological biographies. They're interested primarily in Jesus's public ministry. Even though Matthew and Luke do include some about Jesus's childhood, that's not their main purpose. Their purpose is to talk about his public ministry and what happened during and after that time. All right, the third thing, and this includes several different points, In the ancient world, they had different writing standards. You were allowed to plagiarize and not cite the person where you got the source from. And that was totally acceptable. In fact, it was an honor. Because if you read something that was really wise, why wouldn't you use it? You would be a fool not to use that wisdom. And so, in the Gospels, we can't bring our Western standards of what is legitimate writing practices and superimpose them over the Gospels, nor can we do that with Plato or Aristotle or any of the other ancient writers because they just didn't have the standards that we have today. They had different culture, different writing standards. So ancient writers had different standards for quotations and citations. They often periscoped stories, and what this means is that they often took two or three stories with the same theme and put them into one story. So you can see this happen in the Gospels where Luke talks about um, two different events, it's kind of separated into two different events when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. But Matthew periscopes it into one story. Now Matthew wasn't being lazy. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just simply focused on a different aspect. Or I think it's Mark 
that separates the cursing of the fig tree into two stories. I could be mixed up. It might be Matthew. And then another one of the gospel stories just tells it as one single story. That's called periscoping. That happens quite a bit. Third, the gospels are thematically organized. They're not chronological. So in other words, when the gospel writers sat down, they didn't write a chronological order of what happened in Jesus's life. That's a modern biographical way of writing. In the ancient world, they were more interested in the themes. And so Luke had a purpose when he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so we can see that the, chron- the chronological events are different in the four Gospels. That doesn't mean that they're heirs. That doesn't mean that God's Spirit wasn't working. That doesn't mean that they messed up or there were scribal problems. It just means they had a different purpose for, for telling the story. All right, also in the Gospel, we have Jesus' authentic voice. Meaning we have the intent and the purpose behind what he said rather than exact wording. And once again, this is the difference between a modern expectation of a quotation and an ancient expectation of a quotation. That's why the wording's a little bit different when Jesus is baptized. In Luke, I think it says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In Matthew, when Jesus is baptized, it says this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. That doesn't mean there's an heir. It means that they were speaking the heart of what was said. They're getting at the purpose behind what was said. So an example of this happens all the time. If my wife were to call me, because I'll be here later than most people, and she leaves, and she calls me and says, hey, for our, for our Easter meal this afternoon, we need milk, eggs, and cheese, and bread. And so I'm on the phone, And I hear her say, list those four things, right? Milk, egg, cheese, and bread. And diapers, because we always need diapers. And I say, okay, I will will stop on my way home and get that. And I put my phone in my pocket, and uh, Josh uh, Kumpf says, hey, what did Julie say? I said, she told me to get the basics. Did she exactly tell me (laughs) to get the, were those her exact words, or was that her meaning? It was her meaning. It was the intent behind what she was saying. Go get the basics. I know what the basics are. He doesn't need to know what the basics are. You get the point. All that to say, in the Gospels, we can read them knowing that what Jesus desired to speak through his spirit, the inspired word of God, has been spoken. And the wording, and sometimes the translations, and we're reading it removed from the original language anyways. And so in order to, you would have to read in the original manuscripts with the, which we don't have, in the original language, which who here can read in the original language? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm sure there's a few people. You're amazing if you have that gift. God bless you. All that to say is when we engage the Gospels, we need to keep these things in mind. All right, and then the fourth thing, the differences in the resurrection story found in the four Gospels correspond with specific Gospel writers' theological purpose and perspective. If they all had the exact same perspective, and they all had the exact same reason for writing their Gospels, guess how many Gospels we'd have? One. But we have the gift of this diamond that can be turned and seen from different ways, because we have four different perspectives. And in fact, several of them tell us what their reason is for writing it. Matthew doesn't. And his, his book is complicated. Um, it was written to a Jewish audience primarily at first. We know that. And there's themes that arise, but he doesn't give a purpose statement. But John does. 
So after we read the resurrection story in the book of John, we come to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, where he says Jesus did many other miracle signs in the presence of his disciples. Was John there for many of those? Yes. But John chose not to write about those ones. He chose to write about the ones that were included. In the book of John, there are eight miracles. There are eight I am statements. It's a very beautiful literary intentional, artistic book. There's a reason why he wrote it the way he did. He says, these are written, so the ones that John included, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This should influence the way you read the book of John from beginning to end. Because the reason why it says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John wrote that so that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. So anytime you read the book of John from now on, keep this in mind. This is why John wrote this book. And so from beginning to end, that, that should give you lenses through which to read the book inspired by the Holy Spirit. Really helpful stuff. All right. With all of those things in mind, the different principles that we should engage the scriptures with, let's let the text speak. Let's let the Holy Spirit speak through his word this morning. Amen? All right. As we view the different perspectives. Matthew chapter 26. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance, I love this description, so cool. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Hear that message? This is a big theme in the book of Matthew. Over and over again, we hear Matthew say, do not be afraid. There's a reason why he said this in the resurrection story. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lie. 
So they, they then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, there's that, that word again of, of fear, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, what? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Is fear something that you wrestle with and struggle with? Jesus' resurrection words to you are the same as to his first disciples. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And this story has been circulated among other people to this very day. That it was dis- Jesus' disciples that took him from the tomb. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Notice this. When they saw him, who are they looking at? The resurrected Jesus Christ on the mountain. And they're worshipping him. But what does it say? But some doubted. Even seeing Jesus in front of their physical eyes, they had the evidence of all evidences. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right. Now, Mark, I want you to see if you notice any of those differences as the diamond turns. Matthew and Luke, scholars believe Matthew and Luke most likely used Mark as one of their sources when they were writing their Gospels, so we see a lot of the same stories in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark typically tells less stories, but tells them in a longer form than the other two, which is interesting. Mark chapter 15. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, here's a detail we didn't have before, a prominent member of the council. So this dude had power. This dude was in the inn who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. This would have put him in a very awkward place with the rest of the council, would it not? When they found out what he did, he went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body. Pilate was surprised to hear, this is also a new detail, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. 
When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in the tomb, cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, another detail that's new, when they were on their way to the tomb, they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? This is interesting. We get into the heads of the women as they're going. They're worried. How, how are we going to get to be able to minister to Jesus' body? Who's going to move this stone for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Slightly different word than afraid. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Another, uh, another thing that, that many s- scholars believe is that Peter is the apostle who helped Mark write his gospel. And so there's, a, there's an interesting emphasis in the book of Mark on the ministry and the person of Peter. So here we see it at the very end. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Peter wasn't the only inner ring. He could have said, go tell the disciples and Peter, James, and John, right? Go and tell the disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. All right, Luke 24. Luke was written by a Gentile, not a Jew. Luke was written by a physician, And he includes interesting details about the life of Jesus that aren't included in the other synoptic gospels, including most of what we know about Jesus' childhood. He was was fascinated by those details, and he thought about things differently than the other gospel writers. Luke also wrote what other book? Acts. And Acts is the continuation of the book of Luke. It's one work separated into two parts. The purpose of, of both the Gospel of Luke and um, the, the book of Acts, we're going to see a little bit later in this passage, but it's the story of the Gospel moving from a few small people to the ends of the earth. That's one of Luke's main purposes, talking about how the Gospel has moved from this central small thing, and then Acts ends with Paul going where? To Rome. to the the ends of the earth. So this is a trajectory in Luke. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful 
in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our own companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Sorry, I started jumping around here. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village, notice this picture, it's so cool. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, so beautiful church. When he was with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two, those are the two that were on the road, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they did, listen to this phrase again. It's that weird like seeing and doubting, seeing and struggling. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, it's love that's too good to be true. And there's something that's stuck up here because it's never happened before and it won't, their intellect won't let them just believe he said to them do you have anything here to eat (laughs) there's something so gracious about that jesus meets them in their doubt and their struggle and he just says you have something to eat he said to them this is what i told you while i was still with you everything must be fulfilled what is written about me in the law of moses the prophets and the psalms then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. All right, here's that theme. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. 
I'm going to send you what my father had promised, which is what? The Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then who tells the story of the Spirit being sent? Luke. Luke, in the book of Acts, in the continuation of his storytelling. All right, moving over to John. John's gospel is a little bit different. Um, they don't call it one of the synoptic gospels. He had, he had a different theme. We looked at it before. These things, all the things that were written in John were written for this purpose, that you and I might believe that he is the Son of God, the Christ, and by believing, we might have life. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So this is right after the guys from the Emmaus Road get there. Same story, same time, different perspective. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, listen to this imagery. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This imagery should call one of the first stories in the Bible to mind. When God, creator of all things, reaches down in the dust and forms the man and breathes life into him. Jesus, having formed his disciples, having risen from the dead, from the ground, from the dust, gathers his disciples. He's forming them and opening their minds. And he breathes on them. It says, receive the Spirit. It's beautiful. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Now Thomas gets a bad rap. And probably unfairly so. He's one of the 11 apostles. He's he's one of the reasons why we are here today as as the Lord spread the gospel across the earth. So do not look at him and judge him. This is every one of us. Every bit as it was him. Now, John includes this story for a reason. Watch what immediately comes after he tells this story of Thomas. Struggling, honest doubt, really wrestling, questioning, wondering. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time, though the doors were locked. Again, they're locked. Jesus came and stood among them, says the same thing. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. There's no anger here. This isn't wrath. He meets Thomas where Thomas is. He comes to him in that place of doubt. He says, touch my side. Feel my hands. But then, listen to what Jesus says. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is a beatitude. The wording's the exact same as the beatitudes in Matthew. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's important for us to understand that that word makarios, that's translated into blessing, it doesn't, it's not an equal translation to blessing. Especially in our Western culture where blessing typically means stuff. If you say God blessed me, it's usually because you got a new car or something like that. That's not what this is talking about. In the scriptures, what blessing means is the presence of God. He's with you. Jesus said, blessed God is with. Another way of translating it, one commentator says, which I really like this. I think it's, I forget who it is. I think it's Longman, but he says, This word means you're in a really good place. You're in your right spot. So Jesus says to him, blessed, God is with you. You are are aligned with God. You are in a really good spot. When you have not seen and have yet believed. You should receive a blessing from this this morning. Have you seen the risen Lord? with your eyes or touched his hands or side? Not yet. That day will come. Not yet. Blessed are you who believe. Even though it's difficult. Even though it's hard. Blessed are you who believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in the book of John. But these ones, including this story about Thomas, including the story about the resurrection, these ones are included that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's the resurrection story from four different perspectives. Each of them bring a different unique thing. Now, I want to draw attention to a few things in, in reflection. In the four different perspectives, we have four different theological purposes, all, all of which center around Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior and life being only in his name. But Matthew talks about fear. And, G- and John is, is very specific about touching the physical resurrected body of Jesus because much of his ministry he was writing against Gnostics who believed that physical matter was bad and spiritual matter was good. And so the whole point of Gnosticism is to escape physicality into non-physicality, into the spirit world. This is Platonic dualism. John's writing is very specific, saying, no, Jesus was not raised in spirit. He was raised in spirit and body. He ate fish. Right? He went fishing and ate fish and cooked them on a fire. And he said, touch me. A ghost in spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. John is very specific about this, and this is important because our resurrection hope carries the same hope. We will not just be raised in some ethereal, spiritual way and live disembodied in heaven forever. No. When Christ returns, when the trumpet sounds, all the dead will be given up from the sea and from the ground and from the land, and we will be resurrected, transformed in the twinkling of an eye to match Christ in every single way, which means you will also have a resurrection body just like Christ's resurrection body. Hallelujah? Amen. All right. 
So they all have different purposes. Here's a, here's a couple things, and this is for encouragement, especially if you are struggling with doubt. I feel like God wants to, wants to touch you today. If you're wrestling with doubt, I, I believe that this morning is set aside to touch you in a special way. These are a few verses that we went over and a couple that we didn't. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Even those who saw the resurrected Lord struggled with doubt. Even those who saw Jesus and touched his side, they wrestled with doubt. Let that sink in for a minute. That's important. These words from Thomas, which we just read, but he said to them, unless I touch the hands and marks of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Or in Luke 24, where we read, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Or this further on in Luke, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Or this, this is when Peter um, steps out onto the sea to walk on water with Jesus. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. This is the book of Matthew where Matthew writes a lot about fear. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Another story that happens in Matthew is the calming of the storm when Jesus is sound asleep down in the boat and the storm is crashing over their boat and they feel like it's going to sink and they wake him up. And what does Jesus say to them? Do you remember? He says, do not be afraid. Again, that's Matthew. Now, when John heard, this is also in Matthew, When John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So even John the Baptist, the great prophet of the Lord, who prepares the way for the ministry of the Messiah, has the question, Are you the one, or is there another to come? And then this is what Jesus says to John, another beatitude. Blessed, you're in a really good spot, walking with me, walking in my spirit. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But these are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So perhaps you're a person who doesn't struggle with doubt. Maybe faith is a gift that the Lord has given you. Um, Or perhaps you're a more analytical person or or just wrestle with questions about scriptures and how can any of this be true. That's all part of the journey. That's all part of the journey and it's okay. Listen to this though, and this was the warning I gave a couple weeks ago when I talked about John the Baptist. We live in a time where doubt is considered a place to live rather than a place to journey through. Doubt is no place to pitch your tent. Do not set up camp in a place of doubt that will surely lead to death and destruction. 
the journey of life, the narrow path of Christ, often goes through a place of doubt. And that's okay. But when you are there, wrestle with everything in you. You cling to the word of God. You ask the hard questions. You get people in your life and you ask them the stuff you're wrestling with. I certainly have questions about the scriptures that I wrestle with. I certainly have questions about the the resurrection of the Lord. Wrestle, fight, war, do spiritual warfare. Do not set up camp there. This is one of my favorite quotes and I said it before, but it's worth saying again. Uh, N.T. Wright says, we live in an age of doubt where you can have the intelligence of an onion, but if you choose to doubt everything, you'll be considered smart. It's the waters we swim in. It's the air we breathe and the culture that we live in. So when you find, first of all, hear permission to have questions. Receive permission from the Lord to have honest questions and honest doubt. Even the disciples who saw the resurrected Lord had honest doubt. That's okay. But fight with God and with his word to walk through that because blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. And these things, these things here, the things we read today were written that you and I and our children and our children's children might believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by by believing in him, have life. There is life in one name, church. There is hope in one person, people of God. There is one way to the Father. One and one alone. Jesus Christ. So when you find yourself in that place of doubt, do battle. Take the sword of the Spirit and start chopping away. And get other people with you. Because a cord by itself is easily broken. But a cord of three, that is not easily broken. So if you are in a place of isolation today, you don't have a regular fellowship of believers in your life or community, you don't have people that you're walking and struggling with, you're going to find yourself separated and easily broken. And when the doubts arise and when the struggles arise, you're not going to have much of a backbone or much of an armor to deal with that body, that struggle, because that kind of strength comes in the community of God. I want to look at the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15. If you struggle with the resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 15. It is Paul's thesis statement on the power of the resurrection. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Again, this is the physical resurrection. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord 
your labor is not in vain. Parker Ford Church, would you stand with me? And let's read this word together. Worship team, you can join us up front. Let's read this passage together as a proclamation of our hope in Christ. And if you do not yet have that hope in Christ, let these words wash over you and let the Spirit of God stir with you and see if it is true that God has been risen from the dead and His people have victory through His resurrection power. 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, shout it with me, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake. Come awake, church. Walk from this place in the resurrection power that God has given you. Own it and claim it, knowing that you have been sealed for God with his spirit. When doubts stir within you, fight. Fight like a warrior. Fight like a child of God. He does not wish for you to dwell in that place, but to walk through it and to be known as an overcomer. And you shall overcome in Christ, your Lord and Savior. You shall overcome in Him because of His Spirit and His power dwelling within you. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing together. Before the service began, Tim and I were praying back at the back of the sanctuary, and this is a word that the Lord's been stirring within me for some time now, that if you struggle with the religious spirit, and you can kind of say, I've been saved by faith and grace, but then you spend your life trying to work it out um, and prove it. And if you are on the other end of the spectrum, and perhaps like to the extreme of atheism, Faith is considered foolishness. 
where faith is discarded at the beginning of the journey when it's supposed to be just picked up from the, the religion without the Spirit of God side. And, and what goes missing in both extremes, whether dead religion or whether in atheism, what's missing in both extremes is faith. And if there's something more come against in this age than just simple faith, I don't know what it is. And I was reflecting on that, and I had no idea of this connection. This is profound. Listen to this. I was just sitting back there thinking, how are we going to close this service? Well, I want to close it with the love of God. So I turned, of course, to First John and listened to this connection that he makes between love and faith. He says, everyone, this is chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now listen to this. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world. How are you an overcomer? This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So may you, brothers and sisters, I would invite you just to take a posture of reception as I give the benediction. May you, brothers and sisters, believe, having encountered the word of God in the community of faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Son of God and the Messiah, that he was crucified, that he was buried, but on the third day he was raised to life, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And by believing, may you have life. And not the kind of life that checks itself at the church doors. How silly. May you have the kind of life that is within you, that bubbles forth in every place that you walk, in everything that you do. Thank you so much, Lord. We bless you. We love you. Thank you for being with us this morning, church church family, visitors. We love you. We appreciate you. I'm going to stay in the sanctuary for a while. If anyone would like prayer, uh, I just sense the Lord just saying that there might be a season of prayer. So come, you can join me. I'll be over uh, in the corner over here. If you'd like prayer, come join me for prayer. Otherwise, happy Resurrection Sunday. Go with God. Be blessed. Amen and amen.